Let us now open our copies of God's Word to Zechariah the 10th chapter, Zechariah chapter 10, and we will read the entirety of the chapter. Zechariah chapter 10. Please bow with me in prayer. O Lord, Thou art the God who fills the heavens and the earth, everywhere, always present. And yet, Heavenly Father, we know that there are ways in which our great God, to whom we now pray, is especially present with His people. One of those times, indeed the main, the most important, according to Thy Word, as we journey under the authority of Thy Word as pilgrims to our heavenly home, is when we gather together to worship. And as we open the Word of God, and it is open to us, and we hear not ultimately the minister, but Christ Himself speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we pray, O ever-blessed, ever-present God, melt our hearts by thy goodness, show us thy grace, and grant us mercy, for we have nothing if we have not the mercy of God. We would have wrath, but thank God that thou hast shown mercy to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Even as we see in the text before us today, And we ask that our minds and hearts may be well prepared to come to the table of the Lord and there fellowship with the living, the triune God, by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. The 10th chapter of Zechariah. This is the Word of God. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, From him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders of horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. 
Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, this passage that we have read should not be separated from the prophecy of the Messiah that we saw in chapter 9 last week. And I am utterly convinced that embedded in this chapter also is a very specific messianic prophecy, and we will look at it as we move along. So found here in chapter 10 is this wonderful continuation of chapter 9-1 through 11-17, which in itself is an oracle that begins with the heading, The Burden of the Word of the Lord. These passages are difficult because they mingle the present needs of the people of God in the time of the prophet with his telescoping out to the triumph of the Messiah But that also makes these passages, though difficult, wondrously rich for us. And so as we come to this very difficult passage, and I hope your Bibles are open before you, we see, first of all, the Lord's summons to prayer. The Lord's summons to prayer. He begins in verse 1, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. By the way, there are four words for rain in Hebrew, and three of the four are used here. There's the early rain, there's the latter rain, there is the, the tumultuous rain, which are mentioned here, and there is rain, which is not mentioned here. And so as we come to this passage, we find the Lord is very specific in saying, I want you to pray for rain. And of course, rain is a temporal need, but also it is symbolic of spiritual promises. And the entirety of this section of this passage is actually based upon Deuteronomy chapter 11, in which in verses 13 to 15, the Lord said this to ancient Israel, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you 
and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. And so the temporal need is blended with these deep spiritual needs of the people of God. And so for both, God says, the temporal need and the spiritual need, ask, who can meet this need but the Lord? Who can send rain but the Lord? Who can meet the needs of our hearts but the Lord? And God would have us pray for our needs and pray for his blessings. It's come to the point that we hunger and thirst and we say to the Lord, none can meet my heart's need but the Lord. None can meet my temporal need but the Lord. And the prophet is calling upon them, as we just sang, to bow at the mercy seat, to come before the Lord in prayer. T.B. Moore said, the spirit of prayer in the church is an index at once of her piety and of the spiritual blessings she may expect from God. When the church pours out a fullness of prayer, God will pour out the fullness of his spirit. And that simply is a biblical truth that we need to learn and understand about the place of prayer in relation to the blessings of God. Now, the rain here, he mentions the latter rain, and that there was the former rain, which was in October, and the latter rain that came in March for the ripening of the harvest. An application of this, for example, would be in our congregation as we pray for regeneration and we pray for conversions among us, but also for the church to experience the latter rain to ripen the harvest of souls that God brings. Something along those lines is how it's spoken of in the book of Hosea in chapter 6, the first three verses. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us and the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth, the latter rain of which he speaks here in Zechariah, the spiritual blessing of the Lord. This rain, this latter rain becomes in Scripture the symbol of the spiritual blessing of the Lord upon his people. Now, I want you to note well that the promises of God are to be prayed for. Well, does not God promise certain things? Will he not fulfill those things? Yes, but that is what prayer is, a pleading of the promises of God so that our hearts are bound in one with his and his desire to bless his people. Again, listen to TV more. Prayer for promised blessings is as needful as the promise itself, for it is the condition of its performance. The time of the latter rain may have come, and yet we must ask for it. Now, do you understand this? Is that place of prayer so secure in your heart and in your life that you're fervent in your prayers, that you are actually pleading with the Lord to send upon his church this blessing of the latter rain, this revival in our midst of the great work of God that is so needed across our land, for example. 
And perhaps in your own heart, this attitude of dependence on the Lord contrasts with their former idolatry. And this also is reflected in the passage in Deuteronomy. And he's following that theme when he says in chapter 10, verse 2, for the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And his point here, of course, is that when you went off into the idolatry of of, of this occultism, when one forsakes the light of God's revelation through his word, you end up in a labyrinth of darkness, and you are sheep simply wandering with nowhere to go. In their past, the Jews had turned to the pagan teraphim. These are the, the heathen household gods. Remember Rachel's theft of household teraphim in Genesis 31? They were regarded as speaking oracles that could that could foretell the future. And he's saying to them, you turn to these things, but from where does your blessing come? Who is the one that will send the rain? Who is the one that will send spiritual blessing? And so you've wandered like lost sheep, afflicted for false worship and for lack of a shepherd. And some think these, of course, are political leaders that he references here, and that very well may be, but it also could be governmental leaders, false priests, false prophets, such as we see in Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34 during the Babylonian period. Now, before I move on to the next thing that we want to see in this text, I think there's something that's very important to point out given the day in which we live. And it's how the Lord stresses that we are to follow His Word, not the devices of our own making, not our own feelings, not our own thoughts, but that our thoughts, our feeling, our wills be formed by His Word. We are to follow His Word. We are to rest in God's self-revelation given to us in Holy Scripture. And now that we have a complete canon, we are even more deeply responsible to hear this Word and to follow it in our obedience to what he says here. We are without excuse if we do not follow the word that he has given to us. And therefore, also, that's why he says in verse 2, that's why he says in other places in Scripture that God hates occultism. He hates occultism. The teraphim, consulting the dead, horoscopes, other false oracles, to the word and to the testimony we are to adhere, have nothing to do with false gods, have nothing to do with the demonic. And the classic text for this in Scripture that sets up all of our thinking here is again found in Deuteronomy in chapter 18. And in Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 14, this is what God said to ancient Israel that is still applicable to us today. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard, or a necromancer, 
for whoever does these things is an, is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And he goes on in Deuteronomy 18 and speaks of the true prophet that will come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is modeled as a type by Moses. Now, that's his point here back in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2, when he speaks of their former ways in which they had lost the blessing of the Lord. And I say to you that if you know anything about our our culture at all, there is a great uptick in occultism in our midst. I mean, in our society. Why ever would a Christian buy into this darkness? Is, is it any wonder that in our sophisticated day <laughs> that there is a significant rise in occultism? When the Word of God is set aside and our society turns to all sorts of false gods in order that they might find their personal guidance, whatever that might be. Well, this ruined ancient Israel, and it will ruin anyone who trusts it now. Avoid it as you would leprosy, and avoid it by staying way down deep in your study of Holy Scripture. So they were called to pray, and what did the Lord promise in answer to prayer? Well, that's the second thing we want to see what the Lord promises in answer to prayer. I mentioned very briefly that God will shepherd his people. This is found in verse 3. What strength he will give them, like a war horse suited and equipped for them to go into battle in majesty to judge the nations. But where I want to focus as I answer the question, what did the Lord promise them in answer to their prayer is that he promised he would bring the Messiah. It's right here in verse 4, where he says, From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, and from him every ruler, all of them together. I want to give you, first of all, a few reasons why I believe that this is a prophecy of the Messiah. I'm not making this up out of whole cloth. It's, I think, our reasonable exegesis of this passage to see that this is the Messiah in verse 4. First of all, we should expect in this broader context in which there has been this specific prophecy of the Messiah in chapter 9 that we saw last time, that there might be references to the Messiah in specific terms also as we move along. There also is language that is reminiscent of Micah 5.2, the one who comes forth from Judah to be ruler in Israel, and here it is, from him shall come the cornerstone. And from whom? You notice how it says from him in verse 4. Well, to whom does this point? Well, it points back to verse 3. It's Judah the house of Judah. From Judah will 
he come as cornerstone. From Judah, the tent peg. From Judah, the battle bow. From Judah, every ruler, all of them together. We'll deal with that last part in a little while. But also, there are references in Isaiah and other places in Scripture, prophetically, of the Messiah who would come, who is the cornerstone. And there also is a specific reference in Isaiah of the coming son of David who would be the peg. And so there are all sorts of reasons to see this verse as a messianic prophecy. And so I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying to you, and this is so very encouraging to us as we look at it, that the mission and character of the Messiah is what is promised here. Now, would God promise to bring his Messiah? Yes. Did God also bring the Messiah in answer to prayer? Yes. And so there's the connection between the promise of God and the prayers of the people of God. So look at verse 4 with me. The Messiah is described as the cornerstone. And this is an allusion to Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. And this passage, as I'm sure most of you know, is referenced to Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself cites Isaiah 28 in reference to his own messianic character. We read it in Acts 4.11. We read it in 1 Peter 2, 4-8, and in other places in the New Testament. He provides in himself the sure foundation of the church that he came to build. The stability of this building depends upon the sure foundation stone, this cornerstone that gives the walls its, its stability and its straightness as it rises. And so he is saying to us here, despite the frailty of we, the living stones built upon this foundation, the foundation stands sure. This tried, this precious stone is your stability, Christian, and the stability of his church. The question then is, have you built your life and future upon this cornerstone? Come what may, if you have, indeed, you are safe eternally, while others find him to be a stone of stumbling and offense. The foundation of God remains sure. And so when we come, for example, to a passage such as Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19, we read, So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into an holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the Messiah is our cornerstone. But then he goes on in verse 4 of Zechariah 10, and he says that the Messiah, the one that will come from Judah, is the tent peg. And this can, of course, refer to, to the, 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 
the, the beating down into the ground of those stakes that hold up the tent. But more likely, it is the peg that would be found inside the tent and then also found in oriental houses, the peg or pegs that were there in order that you could hang your household utensils off from the ground and onto those pegs. So he's using an everyday thing to say something very rich. The strong peg inside that would hold up the utensils, or as it is put in Isaiah 22, burdens are hung upon the pegs. It's an allusion to Isaiah 22. And let me just read a a few verses of Isaiah 22 uh, as we think about these verses in verse 22 and following of Isaiah 22. And I will place on his shoulder, and he's talking about Eliakim, who was a son of David, a descendant of David, who points to the Messiah who will come. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open, which is referred to Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, verse 28. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor of his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house and offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So Eliakim in Isaiah chapter 22, which is which is the point here. He's referencing Isaiah 22. He expects them to know this. Eliakim in Isaiah 22 is a descendant of David that prophetically points ahead to the son of David, our Lord Jesus. And upon Eliakim as a peg were hung the glory of the house. And Eliakim could not bear the weight ultimately, but Christ can, did, and does. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He is the one when we go to the mercy seat upon whom we hang, casting all of our care upon Him knowing that He cares for us. And I believe with all my heart that we are intended to take the image of the peg and we are to think in those ways, how is Christ like a peg to the church and to those people, and to you. On Him is suspended all the glory of God's house. So He is firm. He is reliable. He is strong. He is trustworthy. He is immovable. When in your life you find that things are not firm or reliable or strong or trustworthy, And everything seems movable. He is the peg upon which you hang the glory of the house and all of your needs. But also, he goes on to describe the Messiah in verse 4 as the battle bow. He rules and he defends us and he will conquer all his and our enemies. And here there are so many places that reference Christ Jesus as the conqueror of his and our enemies such as Isaiah 63, or I'm turning to Revelation 19, 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what in Revelation 19 is a sword here? There's the reference to the battle bow. Psalm 45 verse 5, Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. And so the message is, yes, people of God, take courage. His truth will overcome all enemies. He is faithful and true. He is the battle bow. He is the sword. He is the one that fights for his people. But also a message for some here undoubtedly is, and I say it in all love and concern, flee the wrath to come. Because he is the battle bow that will shoot his arrow of vengeance on those who do not know and do not trust him. Now, there's one other description here at the end of verse 4 of the Messiah. It's translated here, uh, from him, every ruler, all of them together. Uh, It is notoriously difficult to translate. And so there is the possibility the text can mean, through the Messiah, all oppressors will depart, or it could be translated in such a way that it simply speaks of Christ as the autocratic, the absolute ruler of all, which I think is preferable. But in any case, it is saying that he is the absolute ruler. Whether he dispenses with his enemies, and that's the meaning here, or whether it is simply saying he himself is the absolute ruler, he is the absolute ruler. Michael P.V. Barrett has said, if he is the absolute ruler, it is best to be a citizen rather than an enemy of his kingdom. Don't, don't miss the comment. If he is the absolute ruler, it is best to be a citizen rather than an enemy of his kingdom. This was true then, and it is true now. In verse 5, we find that he has a transformed people. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. Again, T.B. Moore says, these temporal blessings of the theocracy but symbolize the higher blessings of the church, whose triumphs are bloodless and tearless, and whose strength is that of the Spirit, mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and of subduing principalities and powers. He makes his people mighty in the battle that we are called to fight. But now I want to turn to a last thing, a third thing, and that is the method of grace. The method of grace. He answers prayer. He grants spiritual blessing. The coming of the Messiah, uh, who is for us a cornerstone and a tent peg, and, and who is the battle bow, and who is the ultimate ruler of of all. And then we come to these last verses, and he speaks of a gathering. And there seems to be a literal regathering of the Jews here, 
but that's not all. Something else is going on here in this passage. And I think that when we focus on the text here, we need to focus on the spiritual realities that he's speaking of. There's a pointing ahead to the gathering of God's people through the gospel. And I think that's especially true in verse 10, as we shall see. But I think Calvin is right to look at this passage and say, God would gather for himself a church from all the children of Abraham. So again, he's telescoping out. Here's the Messiah. Now, here are those that he will gather. Yes, looking back to where he is, there are those who are in Palestine who are yet to be gathered in to be a part of what is happening there then. But also, there is a gathering of God's people in the future. And so he mentions the blessings that God intends to send in verses 6 and 7, and I'll just summarize those for you. He will strengthen his people. He will receive them. He will give his people a future because it says their children shall see it and be glad, and he will rejoice their hearts. So this is what the Lord does for his people. He delivers from bondage. He restores us. He grants us joy in his salvation. He gives to us a future. And these blessings are the result of his sovereign monergism, his sovereign grace shown in these ways. Some of which I will mention, one or two I will focus on for a few moments. He's sovereign in the calling of his redeemed. So he puts it in this most fascinating way in verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Reading a segment of David Barron this week, Jewish Christian biblical interpreter, Barron spoke of when he was in Palestine on a missionary journey And one evening, a shepherd came and gathered with those with whom David Barron was camping. And he found it interesting that all of the sheep then began to scatter, some of them quite far away, until the shepherd took out from under his cloak a pipe and he began a tune. Not a very beautiful tune, but an interesting tune, a fascinating tune. And all the sheep, even those farthest away, gathered there to the shepherd. And you cannot help but think of this passage. You cannot help but think of John 10, my sheep know my voice. They hear and they will follow. So there's the sovereign calling of the redeemed. There also is he's sovereignly making the punishment of the exile the means of opening the door for the gospel, which I think you can find in verses 9 and 10. So you think of a Timothy or you think of Lydia, those who are results of the, the dispersion, and yet there is the gathering of God's people from afar. So he's sovereignly his pe- gathering his people. Now, let's read verses 9 and 10. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Now, there seems here in these verses to be the intentional use of things that are familiar to set forth spiritual realities. In verse 10, he mentions Egypt. 
Now, the exodus of which we read this morning happened in 1446 B.C. It's a datable event. They have not been under Egyptian bondage since then. But he says in this verse, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt. And then he goes on to say, and gather them from Assyria. But Assyria has not been a nation when this is written for over a hundred years. What is he doing? What is he saying? What is the prophet wanting us to understand? Well, these nations represent the world from which the Lord will call his people. That sinful world that is opposed to God and truth. And if Egypt and Assyria are types of spiritual bondage, and those that oppose the people of God, then Gilead, in verse 10, is a type of spiritual blessing. The point is the gathering seems to point to a far greater reality than simply the gathering of Jews to the land. And that typical significance continues in verse 11 when he says, He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the ways of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So that he sovereignly exercises the power of the exodus in saving his own. And as God delivered from Egypt, and as God delivered from the Assyrians that had taken the northern kingdom captive, as he delivered and led Israel through the sea, so in sovereign power, he continues to save his own. So that the exodus becomes the model of redemption through Christ and what he has done to save us from our sins. As C.F. Kyle said, the drying up of the flood depths of the Nile. Did you notice how it was put here? It doesn't mention the Red Sea. All the depths of the Nile, that great river through Egypt, the one upon which they depended Kyle says the drying up of the flood depths of the Nile is a figure denoting the casting down of the imperial power in all its historical forms. And that is what Christ already in principle accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. And that is what will happen when he comes again. That all imperial powers in their historical form, Egypt, Assyria, all will be cast down. It is true that he will do this. It is just as sure as he rose from the dead. There is no hope for any nation whose God is not the true and living God, whose God is not the Lord. And so God sovereignly causes His people to walk in His name. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord. This is you. This is you. 
I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord, to which I say, Amen, 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 Amen. I heard a feeble Amen over here. God is going to cause his people to walk in the Lord, declares the Lord. But I'm feeble, I'm frail, I'm tempted, I'm tried. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So awaiting us is the completion of spiritual renovation in which we will not be tempted, and we will not be tried, and we will not fail, and we will not fall, and we will not flee. But the Lord will embrace us in his arms as the children that he has made us to be, called us to be. And you will be able to say, it is all of grace from first to last in sovereign grace. He has made me strong, and I walk in his name which begins now, but is consummated in the future. You know, some things when we turn to Holy Scripture, I remember John Murray saying, you know, some things, some things are like dust when we study Scripture. But remember, it's gold dust. But you know, there's some things when we turn to Holy Scripture that genuinely should excite the soul. And don't you think this is one of them? Glory to God, he has the power to bring about what he promises us in his word. Spurgeon somewhere said, the shall of grace is mightier than the I will of pride. Thank God that is true. Well, I must stop. Let me conclude by returning briefly to verse 4 of this It's all messianic, of course, everything here. But this specific messianic promise of who the Messiah would be, what it would be like, from him shall come the cornerstone. From him, that is from Judah, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together. And there is a suggestive comment. I went to the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. And I was pleased to see that the comment there ran just along the lines of my own handling of the verse. And this is is a great comment that was mentioned in in that note. As the corner, the sure foundation, he is the only trustworthy object of faith. The only hope for sinners. As the nail... He holds up under any weight and load. He bore the load of our guilt and sin and is able to hold our troubles and cares. We can hang it all on him. As the battle bow, he subdues all of his and our enemies. He is the able and unfailing defender of his people. As the absolute ruler, he rules either by grace or with iron. It is critical to be a citizen rather than an enemy of his kingdom. (laughs) How true. Indeed, this is true. 
that we are completely undone without Christ so described in this passage. Because if you have not put your trust in Christ, you have no foundation. You have no cornerstone. And you are not part of his people built upon the cornerstone. You have no peg, no nail. You're sin bearer. No one to bear your sorrows. No one to fight your impossible battles. The battle bow. You don't have this. No one to rule your heart absolutely by His sovereign grace, love, and mercy. So I urge you, do not spend another moment outside of Jesus Christ. But come to Him and know Him to be your cornerstone, your tent peg, your battle bow, your absolute ruler. Do not spend another moment outside of Christ. Trust Him as your foundation. Trust Him as your peg. Trust Him as your battle bow. Trust Him as your absolute ruler. And trust Him now. Amen.